Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. I want to talk a little bit about the gospel reading today. Uh, In order to really grasp its profound meaning, you have to understand the setting. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in the town of Caesarea Philippi, which was a Roman city located in northern Palestine. It'd be along the Syrian border today in what's known as the Golan Heights. And uh, Caesarea Philippi was a vacation spot for Gentiles who happened to be uh, stationed in the staunchly monotheistic region of Palestine and Israel. And, uh, and, uh, and it was a place, a vacation place for uh, pagans to come and have a little slice of their homeland. The city was given as a gift to Caesar Augustus by Philip II, who was King Herod's, the, King Herod's son, who was, uh, Philip II was the tetriarch of the region. And when the Greeks had conquered that area, for the longest time, the pagans had dedicated the area to the god Pan, the god everything. And so uh, there were tons of temples and tons of idols there. There was a huge temple dedicated to Caesar, which uh, actually had inscribed on it, Caesar Kairos. Caesar is Lord. And in my mind's eye, when I picture this reading, I picture Jesus and the disciples walking down some sort of esplanade covered with small temples and big temples and idols, and uh, the disciples, being staunch Jewish monotheists, are feeling a little uncomfortable being in this place. But Jesus is using this place as a backdrop and an illustration to ask two of the most profound questions that need to be answered. The first question is, the question of popular opinion. But Jesus isn't asking it because he cares what people think. He's asking it to make a, a point to the disciples. And he says, who do you, who do the people say that I am? And of course, the, uh, the disciples answer. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, who's come back to life. Others say you're Elijah the prophet, and this is a reference to the prophet Malachi, who said that the prophet Elijah must come back before the terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. Others said, well, you're just one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. You know, you're one of these people. And then Jesus hits them with the question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that question posed to the disciples is a crucial question because it's the question that articulates the difference between faith and unbelief. It poses the difference, actually, between life and death. There's no gray area or ambiguity on this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter delivers the answer. You are the Christ. Which in Peter's mind most certainly meant something uh, more along the cane of a revolutionary king who is about to usher in a holy war and reestablish the Davidic kingdom once and for all. However, Jesus begins to teach something a little different, doesn't he? He says the Messiah must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious authorities, be killed, and then on the third day rise again. What? What? What are you talking about, Jesus? You know, that doesn't fit the profile of what the Christ should be. 
And Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Imagine that, you know? Are you kidding, Jesus? I mean, I didn't give up my fishing business to watch you die. You know, that's not what messiahs are supposed to do. And at that moment, I have in my mind's eye this image of Jesus looking out of the corner of his eyes with the disciples all around him, and they're kind of shaking their head in agreement with Peter. Yeah, Jesus, that's crazy talk. And Jesus, in that moment, rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter the confessor has become, in this brief moment, the mouthpiece of the devil, the spokesman for Satan. And we tend to make Peter into a heel when we read the Gospels, and we're like, <laughs> Peter, you know, of course, good for Jesus. But, you know, the truth, <laughs> but the truth is, that's how I hear it in my head. But anyway, the, the truth is, is that Peter can make this great confession in one breath, and then this great denial in the next. And the truth is, as James says in our reading today, out of the same mouth comes blessings and the profane. You and I are no different. I love actually how St. Paul puts it. When I do good, evil lies close at hand. Peter the confessor and Peter the denier are one in the same. Just as we are both sinner and saint, one and the same. One moment I'm in this pulpit telling you, imploring you to trust God, and then the next moment I'm home trying to control the situation. I'm in the office trying to tighten my grip so it doesn't go away, you know, because I'm scared. And from my worldly instincts, just like yours, a crucified Messiah, that just, that seems a little crazy. Yet by faith, I know, at the same time, it's the safest place in the world to be. However, the question becomes, when you look at this, and you begin to peel this passage back, the question becomes is, what is actually the root of our denial? What's the root of our denial when we deny the Lord? Because the denial of Christ is, is, is the fruit of something far more sinister. In our reading, Jesus gives his disciples, including all of us when he calls the crowds, the answer. He says, if any person would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will gain it or will save it. It's the key word. You see, the root of our denial comes from what I call our self-salvation projects. We're all trying to save ourselves, aren't we? This is ultimately Peter's problem, and it's our problem. I am totally fine with a Messiah. Hear me, I am totally fine with a Messiah. I just don't want that Messiah to come with suffering. I want a Messiah minus the dying and rising for my sins and my justification. We instinctively want a Messiah without the cross. And this plays out kind of in, in, in a discussion philosophers have had for centuries. Philosophers have historically broken life down into three categories. You have work, 
you have recreation, and you have religion. I mean, you go and you can see it still today, you know, how to be better in the workplace, you know, how to have a great vacation. You know, all of these things, our life breaks down into these three categories. And when these three categories fall into our hands alone, they become means by which we think we can save ourselves. I can save my life by immersing myself in work. <sighs> yeah, that's it. then I'll be successful. Then I'll have titles. I'll have more money. I might be fulfilled. Everyone will like me. And then I'll be happy. I can save my life by immersing myself in recreation. I'm going to take on a hobby. I'm going to fix a car. I'm going to, you know, master fine wines. At least that's what I think about. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to be at peace and more self-actualized as I make my way from the city to the beach. As I make my way from my mountain house to my apartment. Then I will be happy. I will be fine. And for crying out loud, every religion in the world is a self-salvation project. Except for Christianity when it is properly understood. Sadly, though, Christianity has been domesticated by the peddlers of the self-salvation project. Don't believe me? Go to Union Square's Barnes & Noble. The Christian section is right next to the self-help section. I told the people one time, we need our own section called Beyond Help. Because <laughs> I need a savior. I mean, if I could do it, what am I doing here? So, I mean, I, I need a savior. And let me tell you, if you thought Christianity was a self-salvation project, welcome to Calvary St. George's because we're going to rock your mind with the gospel. We're going to tell you and inform you that Christianity is something completely different because it's not a self-salvation project. I mean, I guarantee you, across this place, because of the peddlers of self-salvation projects, people are hearing sermons about how they need to take up their cross. It's usually chocolate or maybe doing more quiet times. And how by taking up your cross, you can draw a little closer to God. That is a self-salvation project. And that is to deny the gospel and to deny Christ. No matter how pious it sounds. And this is powerful because everyone in the first century knew what Jesus was talking about when he called his disciples in the crowd to take up their cross and follow him. And if there were Twitter feeds in the first century, there would have been one that said things no one says in the first century. And it would have been, Jesus, that sounds like a great idea. Like, it is true because everybody there would have known exactly what he was telling them to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer summed it up profoundly in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is what Jesus is saying. Come and die. Now, he doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom although it might, and for a lot of our brothers and sisters who live in Islamic republics, this is the reality. But this is my second point, the essence of what Jesus is getting at. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow him, to lose your life? What it means, and this is the affront for New Yorkers, what he is saying to you is give up. Give up. 
say uncle, to take up your cross and follow Jesus ultimately means that the only way to live is not to save yourself, but to die in Jesus. And the only way to live is not to save yourself, but to lose yourself as you follow Jesus to his cross and his death. And hear me on this. To lose your life is to recognize profoundly that even your cross won't save you. Only Jesus' cross will. Your death won't save you. Only Jesus' will. Because by his death, he has destroyed death and brought us into everlasting life. Therefore, what does this mean in real life? Well, what this means is, is that actually real life has very little to do with blessing in human terms, and rather everything to do with loss. Jesus on the cross, rejected, suffering, and dying, proclaims to us that God is not so much always found in the gaining but in the losing. But the good news is, is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so there at the right hand of the Father, he continues to beckon us to come. And what this means is, is freedom. It frees you up. It frees you up to serve your neighbor right where he's placed you. It frees you up that he might be the Lord truly over your human existence. Because it's never been about you and your glory, but always about him and his glory. And he deigns to share it with you. And ultimately what this means is, is this means freedom. Since you've lost, since you've lost your life, and you lost it when you were baptized... But since you've lost your life, what else is there to lose? Now you can confess your sins to God and your neighbor. Now, and you can confess it because you know you've already been totally forgiven. Now it means you can rest. Rest in the fact that you don't need to impress the one person who matters because God, the king of the universe, is your father. And he calls you his children. And because you are his children, you can bear fruit as you take on suffering and disappointment with patience. And ultimately, this is the most profound point. As you die, as you die, you can say with your last breath, with sure and certain hope in the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is Lord. And this is my third point. To take up your cross, to lose your life, is ultimately to gain your life. It is, as our new slogan is around here, to enjoy your forgiveness because we're freed from ourselves. We're forgiven before the law. 
And you and I now can live boldly and confidently in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ I glory. So you who are burdened and weary by the world, (laughs) that's me. You who are baptized and have been buried with Christ, let's come to the supper of the Lamb. Let's feast on the bread that is his body and the wine that is his blood. As we lose our life once again, only to be found in his. Enjoy your forgiveness. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.